Hey folks, this is Cameron. Before we get into this episode of The Cold War Show, I just want to give a plug for the book that I've written, which I'm trying to get published, because you can help. If you haven't already seen me talk about this on Facebook, um, uh, you know, I've been, you've heard me talk for the last six or seven years about this book I was writing. Uh, it's called The Psychopath Economy. It's basically how psychopaths are running all of our corporations and organizations, uh, businesses, uh, political parties, religions, uh, the police, the military, and why, and how that happens, why that happens, and what we can do about it. Book's finished, and it's up on a website called publishizer.com. Basically, publishizer is like crowdsourcing for publishing. You put your book up there. People vote for your book by pre-ordering your book. And then based on the number of pre-orders the book gets, publishers bid for the right to publish the book. So uh, I think it starts at like 10 bucks for an ebook, and I even throw in an ebook of my first book, The Three Illusions. Uh, you can get a paperback, you can get multiple paperbacks, there are different bonuses in there, you can get access to the podcast that'll come out on the psychopath economy. Um, but if you haven't already and you, 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 you're interested in reading the book and willing to help me get it published, go up to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash psychopath economy, bit.ly slash psychopath economy, or just Google psychopath economy. Uh, you'll find it, the psychopath economy, the publisher's a link. Go up there, buy a copy of the book and uh, help me get that published and uh, learn about how to uh, spot the psychopaths in your life and defend yourself against them. Like Ray, writing this book, I realized that Ray is a complete fucking psychopath and, and I need to be careful. And, and you'll understand why once you read the book. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. All right. Uh, welcome back to the Cold War Show, episode 109. Uh, off air, Ray just told me that I should be careful because he's feeling phenomenal, in his words. He, great. I'm yeah. waiting to hear the rest of that yeah. story. Why are you – did you get some pussy, Ray? Why uh, – no. was it like human <laughs> that pussy would have for helped. a change? What, what, right. What's going on? <laughs> I didn't think about that. Have you ever heard of medicinal – Pussy. I tried that with the wife. Didn't work. As you may remember, I was very, very sick. Everybody's been sick. Medicinal Went to the doctor. Pussy. Gave me some. some <laughs> he gave you some medicinal <laughs> pussy. He gave you a script. The doctor that did. Said, uh, he was just go cute. fill this out. Uh, yeah, you don't have the go. Just like I'm here for some medicinal pussy. What do you call yeah, a pharmacist? No, what it, do you call, no, I don't know what you call it. <laughs> a farmer. Here it's called a farmer because we just, <laughs> hey, can I fuck your cow? I'll feel a lot better afterwards. But, it's medicinal. Uh, no, no. It's, it's medical. Yeah, it's don't, medicinal. don't look at me like that. <laughs> Prescription. Now, am I enjoying it? Yes, but that's the whole point. It's medicinal, so you can't judge me. No no morals when it comes to medicinal pussy. No, no, I literally felt like I had every, you know, STD imaginable. I just felt like crap, go to the doctor, get a shot. I feel, mm, I'm better now. I'm ready to go. In fact, some medicinal pussy would be great. But no, I, you know, you're on death's bed. And a couple of days later, you just, you feel, you're back to normal and you just feel like, Fuck yeah, Team America! I am ready to go. That's that's it. You just you didn't have any story really, just that you feel good. I, f I fucked a cow. I I don't know what else I can bring to this show. I thought there was going to be more than that. All right, well, um, let's get in. No, no, I sorry, I let, let you down. Yeah, that was kind of really sad. a non-story. Yeah. Um, but you do believe it's the end of the world today because yesterday it was <laughs> snowing where you are. Today it's moderately yes. moderately warm. Um, and, yeah. the, and you're going to spend the end of the world making dick jokes with me. That's basically, uh, <laughs> that's, that's how I see myself going out. That's how we're going to get out. any better. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> You'll say something inappropriate. I'll laugh. The bomb drops. And mm. then, I mean, it's just all infinite after that. So that's what I'm hoping for. Well, uh, let's get into it. Um, last time on the show, Ho, uh, was on the Ho show. Ho Chi Minh, he's gone back to Vietnam after right. the embarrassing uh, non-event of the negotiations in Paris. Um, he, he signed a modus vivendi with uh, his uh, sort of friend, Moutet, the, uh, <laughs> I think the French foreign minister. Um, some of his party colleagues are losing faith in his ability to win them their independence. 
Um, and I and I think it's important to understand this when we're talking about revolutions and revolutionary leaders like Ho Chi Minh. Um, I, I think there's a tendency uh, sometime, mm. uh, sometimes in the West because these people are sort of mythologized uh, after the event and, and um, right. there are biographies written about them and movies made about them and we, we kind of see these guys. I think the tendency, the, the, the mistake sometimes is to see guys like Fidel Castro or Ho Chi Minh or um, uh, Mao Zedong or whoever it is uh, as being sort of um, larger than life in their own time and in their own place. So what we need right. to, to, I think, f- fully appreciate is revolutionary leaders rarely, if ever, have the unified support of their parties, let alone the entire population of the country where they're trying to bring about revolution. Just like in a democracy, there's competition mm-hmm. over ideas and outcomes and, and methods of achieving those outcomes and who's the best person to lead us uh, to, towards those outcomes. And the same is true of any population, including one that is going through a revolution or on the verge of going f- through a revolution. So despite the fact that Ho is the current leader, and he is very popular um, right. in Vietnam in 1946, he doesn't have... support of the people. He doesn't even have 100% support of his own party. Um, (laughs) And as time is dragging on and his ability to to deliver a satisfactory outcome uh, seems to be uh, uh, in some doubt, uh, he's, he's facing leadership crises, leadership challenges within his own party. And as we've as we've seen over the last dozen or so episodes, not only within his own party, he's also fighting off the non-communist uh, revolutionary leaders, rebel leaders who want control of the revolution. Um, so it, it's not like you know he he's sitting happily on top of events here. There's always right. there's always conflicts going on, even when you're the so-called figurehead of the revolution. And, and to celebrate the um, sort of first anniversary of their declaration of impe- uh, independence, it's a year later from when Ho got up and gave his big speech in Hanoi, um, right. a number of, of leading members of his own party, including Zhap, his um, military leader, including uh, Trong Chin, who's been the general secretary of the uh, Indochina Communist Party, um, mm-hmm. they're starting to question Ho's judgment. And Trong Chin, uh, on the first anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, actually publishes an article where he's uh, setting out his own vision and, and fairly critical of Ho. Did you read much about Trong's uh, statement? Um, yeah, I read, yeah, he was going through, he was pretty hard in an indirect way on Ho. And you, and like you were saying a minute ago, I mean, the Monus Vivendi was not only weak, did it, it not, did not only not secure the, the uh, country for him, but it also, like you said, it showed that he was imperfect, that he couldn't do everything, no matter how sincere his attempts were. And so now, like you said, he's got people who are not afraid, maybe as they used to be, to uh, to criticize him either to his face or, or or out in the press or whatever. But you're right. This gentleman wrote that um, we have to be wary of unprincipled compromise because it showed a lack of confidence in the masses. And if you think about it, the masses are, after all, their main strength. So it's not the enemy that we need to be afraid of, but mistakes made by our own comrades. So again, not openly criticizing Ho's leadership, but Ho was expected to read between the lines, and he probably figured out from that point on, like you were saying earlier, he can't just say, I think we should do this, and then everybody's going to fall down and do whatever he wants. He's going to have to be more of a team player now, um, especially when it comes to key policies, because these guys are like, yeah, you had your shot, you didn't get it, now we want to, even though you're still in charge, we have some ideas that we want to push forward. I don't think it's a criticism of Ho particularly, just that his idea that um, they'll be able to negotiate independence Mm. um, with the French is proving to not 
work out. The the French obviously just cold shouldered them um, in Fontainebleau, right. and um, and uh, he's come back with his you know just his dick in his hand. Um, he's like. <laughs> Well, he's he flops his dick out and he goes, "That's what I got," and they're like, "That's just your dick." That's all I got. He goes, "Well, yeah, you know, you could. That's you all can, I got. Anyone can criticize, um, <laughs> right? So it, it's just well, I think I, I think I think they're coming to the conclusion that look, you had a shot. Um, yeah. you, you tried it your way. You tried to negotiate with these French motherfuckers. Um, it's not getting anywhere. They're they're bullshitting us. It's time to go hardcore. Uh, and um, I think he's reluctantly, reluctantly um, agreeing with these hardliners in his party. I mean, it's often it's often portrayed that Ho was the moderate, and he had these hardliners, and we'll see a lot of that in the next few episodes. But you know, he right. he tried to do it the the peaceful way. He tried to yeah. give France an opportunity to do the right thing. Um, and give these give the country their independence. He tried to do the right thing by getting the um, uh, Americans to support the independence um, uh, and to step in, mediate the the conversations with France. They they gave him the cold shoulder as well. And so gradually, I mean, what do you do? You either give in or you knuckle mm-hmm. down and go, okay, well, I guess we're going to yeah. do it this way, right? You strap on the gloves. <laughs> right. Um, right. You have one. You have one of those uh, Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Uh, or Stallone montages from the eighties, Monta- where you just see, you should just see, start training, punching. No, some it's beyond. It's beyond no. training. Now it's you know you see the uh, the bullet belt going over the chest. Oh, you see the magazine, yeah. the bandana, close up. bandana yeah, being done. Right. That's it. It's the bandana <laughs> montage. Yeah, magazines going into guns. Twenty twenty guns, strapping right. them in. You know, holsters everywhere. <laughs> Machetes in the yeah. back holster, double yeah. machetes in the back holsters. Sharp, sharpening the machetes. Sharpening, yeah. yes. You're with it's me a, now. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's, oh, it's I've got a hard on like for Donkey an Kong. 80s bandana <laughs> montage. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. But but the one thing that has not changed despite all this is that the people still love him. They're still dedicated to him. They can see that he is dedicated to them, to their cause. He's got these cute little stories that we've shared in uh, previous episodes. He's got this very modest lifestyle, which, you know, struck a chord with the people. And, and if anything, he's almost in some ways becoming something other than just himself. He now embodies the cause of national independence. And and I found this interesting. So we both agreed that the modus vivendi completely sucked as far as what it was what it was designed to do, which was uh, what his goals were. But the, the people's attitude is, look, if anybody can take that piece of paper and get it done, it's Ho. The Ho can get the job done. But like you, you were saying a second ago, the people in his very cabinet are going, no, Ho didn't do it. It's now time for, for more drastic measures. Speaking of uh, Stallone montages, I watched a great YouTube during the week. The uh, yeah, the the uh, main guy behind Survivor telling the story of how Eye of the Tiger was written for Rocky Three. Really? Yeah, he said he, he came home one day, got a voice. There's a voicemail, uh, an answering machine. He goes, "Hey, it's Dave Stallone. Give me a call." He's like, <laughs> "Fucking what?" He, he, he thought he was being prank. Pr- thought he was being pranked. Yeah. yeah. So he rings this number, and he's like, "Hey." Slay. He goes, really? He goes, yeah, yeah that's really me. Slay goes, I'm a big fan of your band. I want you to uh, record a song for oh. Rocky Three. And he goes, right. can you can you do it? He goes, fuck yes, I can do it. So Stone yeah. says, I'll send you a VHS of the opening of the film and you can see what it is. So he sends him this VHS and, and the track that's already on the opening is Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. Right. And um, the guy from Survivor calls Stallone up and he goes, look, you've already got this song and it's perfect. It fits. It's brilliant. Stallone goes, yeah, but uh, Queen won't let me use it. <laughs> um, really? So can you write me another song? And he goes, fuck yes. So he writes uh, um, um, Eye of the Tiger. Eye of the Tiger. And he said, right. you know, and I, he said, I, I've thanked Queen every day ever since then. <laughs> <laughs> have you, you know. said your prayers to Queen today? Yes, yeah. I have. Yes, yeah. I have. Yeah. Thoughts and prayers to Queen for <laughs> That's um, awesome. It's Rocky Stallone three. down. Yeah, yeah. He was huge by then. And it, you never know. You never yeah. Know. Yeah, well, there you go. And Survivor, you know, God knows how much money yeah. they made out of that song. Ever since. <clears throat> Anyhow, um, so regardless of what his colleagues thought about the peace process, um, Ho's still very popular with the people of North Vietnam. He's already uh, taking on an almost mythic role 
as the man mm. who's going to lead them towards their independence. And as you said, many people believe right. that if anyone could <laughs> deliver a peace deal with the French, could could get the modus of a Vendi uh, happening, then he was the guy. Yeah. Then on October 23rd, 1946, which, by the way, was my grandmother's 33rd birthday, wow. Ho issued a public statement assuring people that they would eventually get their independence mm-hmm. and the North and the South would be united. However, on the same day, October 23rd, 1946, right. D.R. Genlio, the High Commissioner for Indochina, the Mad Monk, right. uh, got approval <laughs> from Paris for reinforcements oh, uh, in the form of a light armoured division of 10,000 troops. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, Ho's uh, telling everyone that it's all going to be okay. We're going to get our independence. On the other hand, the French are gearing up for they're having their own bandana montage. Right, <laughs> it's just in French, which means we don't understand it. <laughs> and uh, General Jean Etienne Valui, and mm-hmm. I'd like to uh, thank uh, all of our French listeners for helping me out on Facebook last night to tell me how to pronounce V-A-L-L-U-Y, Valui, mm-hmm. Valui. He's the, kima- <laughs> he's the commander of the French forces in Indochina, took over from General Leclerc. Right. Um, he had recommended to D.R. Genlio that instead of contenting ourselves with controlling rebel attacks in the south, we should put serious pressure on the rebels by taking large-scale initiatives in Hanoi and Annam. This seems to me to be the inevitable recourse to the Ultima Ratio. So basically, I mean, and that's completely against the modus, the yeah. terms of the modus vivendi, obviously. But the French don't give a fuck. They are, you know, they are going, they are gearing up to go hardcore. Right. Ultima yeah. ratio, by the way, means the final argument, the last oh. resort. Now, here's my thing. Just, just real quick. I'm sorry. If you I don't set want to every- see your, I don't want to see your thing. Put it back. No <laughs> Too one. Too late. It's no out. No one wants to see your thing. Apart from uh, the fact, it's hard. It's hard to see. I have no, to get my magnifying glass out. That's not very nice. That's not, it's not, I'm not, anyway, that, that's hurtful. Uh, it, make, it shrivels every time you say something like that. No, but if you were to set both sides down and you and I were to pop up there, you know, two podcasters in a, in a um, TARDIS and go, okay, who here thinks it's still possible to have peace? Raise your hand. I think there would only be one man who would be raising his hand, and it would be the scrawny little, almost bald guy in the very nondescript clothes. I think it would be Ho Chi Minh. I think both sides know what's coming because both sides aren't willing to give up. And only Ho is like, you know, no, we can still do this because if, if he doesn't get it done and it does go to war, he has failed in a sense in everything he's trying to do. I, I think he would still be trying, but even he has got to see the inevitable tide of what's going on. It's just, you it's got to be physically you know, painful for him. You know who he reminds me of? Who? Um, Big, Big Julie. Remember, yeah. you know, Big Julie, before he crosses the Rubicon, and even after he crosses the Rubicon. Yeah. Which was, funnily enough, um, 2,000 years ago, previous, <laughs> you know, almost 2,000 years earlier, right. crosses the Rubicon in 49 BCE. This is at 46 mm-hmm. 1946 CE, so yeah, almost exactly 2,000 years earlier. Spooky. Remember, he's he's desperate. Julius Caesar's desperately trying to avoid a civil war. Yeah, Um, Pompey, uh, talk to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Emailing Pompey, uh, (laughs) sending him sending him dick pics, everything. He's like, dude, if we could just sit down and talk, I know we can work this out. Yeah, we can work it out. We can work it out. He even sang that into a little voice mail. Right. Like he's just trying and hoes like that. He's like, come on, guys. Yeah. We don't have to do this. Yeah. But the French, as we'll continue to see, are so completely arrogant, which is surprising yeah. for people who basically laid down in front of Hitler. And yeah. I think that's a big yeah. part of it. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. I think the French... Uh, was so embarrassed about how uh, pathetic 
they were when they were attacked by the Nazis that they're trying to regain face. In fact, we'll we'll see quotes as we go along from people like De Gaulle and others um, uh, that basically back that up. They were desperate to to resurrect their their reputation uh, as a yeah. serious military power by beating up on a bunch of uh, 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 poor fucking right. rice farmers. Almost um, weaponless, yeah. If I could just finish off the uh, Roman analogy real quick. So what, so what does the Senate do? They declare a national emergency and they give Pompey a sword and put him in charge. So yeah, so like you're right. Caesar's like, if we just sit down, I know we can work this out. But they were unwilling and just like the French are unwilling for, for various reasons. But pride, is, national pride is certainly the big one. It's the same as Napoleon uh, in the lead up to the invasion of Russia in 1812. You know he is he is emailing uh, Tsar Alexander, <laughs> right? Uh, say, you know they've been really good friends for about six or seven years. Um, mm. They had a, the Treaty of Tilsit. Uh, Napoleon was trying to marry Alexander's sister, um, and, and he's and then uh, as people who have listened to my Napoleon series with uh, the old alcoholic will remember, <laughs> um, they. Uh, <laughs> They uh, 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 Alexander just breaks off contact because he's under wow. so much pressure from his own nobility ah, right. uh, to 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 again uh, resurrect the the uh, reputation of mm-hmm. Russia as being a, a major military power, um, uh, and also you know again like the rest of the monarchs of Europe and the the nobility of Europe. They didn't want to see the French Revolution or the successor to the French Revolution, Napoleon, succeed because if the French could get away with uh, overthrowing their monarchy, then the rest of the people right. in Europe... Domino effect. Well, yeah, domino effect, exactly, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. Right. Um, and so uh, just like Pompey didn't return Caesar's emails, Alexander didn't return Napoleon's emails and started gearing up for war, putting troops on the border of Poland... And Napoleon was like, oh, fuck it. All right, all right. I guess we're going to do this, right? So it's the same with Ho. Ho's like, listen, we don't have to do this. Um, But unlike Julius Caesar and Napoleon, Ho's not a general. Ho hasn't spent the last 20 years honing his general chops. Um, You know, he's. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. He's Sit a down, talker. Talk he's to a, me. Talk he's to a me. podcaster. You know, he's right. just basically going, listen, I'm not going to... Armchair general. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to do anything, but I'm going to no. tell you what you did wrong. I mean, that's right. basically a podcast. That's <laughs> kind of my thing. That's in the job description of a history right. podcaster. We're not going to do it. We're just going to tell you what you should have done. And I'm going to um, take 56 hours, but... Yeah. 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 <laughs> so anyhow, anyhow, anywho... Um, where was I? Oh yeah, Valoui. Yeah, he's going. Yeah. No, no, no. Let's let's strike the north and strike hard, Jeez. hard like D'Angelo. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the French position um, in uh, the south had been steadily weakening as well. Did mm. you uh, in your in your you know lengthy detailed right? research yeah. that I'm sure you did? Did you come up? With the story of Dr. Nguyen Van Thin. Nguyen Van Thin. I'm getting these names mixed up, but no, please, please tell me. Because mm, yeah. I, I still have Nguyen Ben Ben in my mind from the last time, but please mm. tell me the story. Dr. Nguyen Van Thin was the supposed president of Cochin China, the Cochin Chinese Republic. Remember when um, Ho was in Paris... Mm-hmm. Dr. Genlio just took it upon himself to declare the Republic of Cochin <laughs> right. China. Done. Well, he, appoint, he appointed this guy president, Dr. Nguyen Van Tin. He was an anti-communist, mm-hmm. and he's supposed to be in charge of the independent Republic of Cochin China. Um, but he had been complaining um, to Dr. Genlio that, uh, listen, I'm just a puppet. Am I? Right. Do I have any sort of real authority, or am I just a puppet? Are we a republic, or are we just uh, a colony? Right. Because they he couldn't get anything done. They were like, no, no, no. just sit there. No, yeah. uh, no. Yeah. Oh, sorry, no. 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 no, no, no. Everything he said, no. <laughs> uh, 
voulez-vous coucher avec moi? Et il dit, what? That doesn't even make any sense. No. Can I? No. May I? No. 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 Yeah. Um, and uh, God, he, he got so frustrated with this being a fake president that right. he, hung, he hung himself. What? Uh, yeah. On November 10, 1946, his body was found hanging oh. from the latch of his window. Now, Diagenio uh, spun Ventin's suicide um, as best as he could, blamed it on Ho Chi Minh. See? See what you See? did? <laughs> you made him hang himself. Look what you did. Uh, oh my God. But it's obvious that even their uh, you know attempts at uh, jumping the gun and establishing an independent government failed. They couldn't even do that right. Jeez. Another interesting tidbit that uh, mm-hmm. you probably didn't come across: uh, Leon Pignon, who was the f- French federal commissioner for political affairs in Saigon, right. uh, he was also pushing f- for a hard attack on the Viet Minh, but. Right. His concern, according to uh, some of the letters that he wrote at the time, was that if they didn't attack the Viet Minh quickly and take control over that whole area, it would allow the United States to gradually increase its economic penetration into the country. That is that based on anything, or is that just French paranoia? Because... Well, you know, it's based on, I would say, a pretty good understanding of American objectives. You know, right. I've been talking about this since we started this fucking show, um, <laughs> talking about the economics of war and how America at the time, well, from the late 19th century right through to World War II and beyond, America's objectives was to grow its own economic strength by creating open markets, the open door policy in China, uh, et cetera, et cetera, because America was producing a lot of shit and they needed to be able to export it. And they couldn't do that prior to World War II because of all of the European trading blocks. And Mm -hmm. so they're trying to kick in doors everywhere they can so they can sell their shit. And they're masking it with, well, it's about freedom and independence uh, which is true, but really the reason yeah. they, they care about that is like they didn't care about freedom and independence of people in Hawaii or Costa Rica. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they cared about the freedom and independence of places that they weren't already exporting to, so they could right. export to them. Um, and obviously Pignon understands that. Now, on one hand, you've got the Truman administration – publicly and privately supporting the French's uh, retaking control of Indochina. But Pignon understands that if uh, we don't do this quickly, that could change. Maybe Mm -hmm. the Truman administration will be out and some other guys will be in who will Uh. be less friendly to our interests and will go, no, fuck it, we're moving in. We're going to support the Vietnamese. And obviously there were, as we've seen before and we'll continue to see, there were people inside Washington who were supportive of the uh, of Vietnamese independence, um, right. weren't, weren't big supporters of the French. And um, so, you know, it's easy to see how the, the, the winds of change could have blown quickly through Washington and the French could have been out on their asses. Um, but just, I thought it was really interesting to see that Pignon was talking about U.S. economic interests. He got it. Right. Well, the the other part of that is, uh, yeah, we have to do this. But the, the other part, the reason to hit it hard is because if we do start something and it becomes a quagmire, obviously at some point, if, if, we, if basically if we go in there and we break it and we can't fix it or we can't control it, that's also could potentially invite the United States in there. And, and, and to go to the point that you were making, it almost doesn't matter how or why the United States gets in. Once they're in, they're in. So again, they have to do this and they have to do it right and quickly because if not, it's going to get the attention of the United States, the, uh, the dominant power at the time. Yeah, I don't think anyone thought this was going to end up as a quagmire. I think yeah. th- I think they saw it as an option. The, the, the choices the were, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The choices were like we we don't do anything. Uh, we fuck around on the edges, 
and just, you know, do little defensive mechanisms, uh, actions, or we go in hard and just knock them out in a single blow. They they had no idea what they were getting themselves into, (laughs) obviously. Um, So uh, that's going in there. So for some reason, Ho was still being fairly careful about talking about his past. Um, I was surprised to learn that even at this stage, most Vietnamese didn't know anything about him. Right. They didn't well, like, know I, that he was, yeah. you know, uh, formerly Nguyen Ai Quoc. Um, not that anyone would have really known who he was anyway. Right. Well, to me, it's almost like, you know, I don't know, uh, Betsy Sue from the country uh, has a singing voice, goes to, to, to Hollywood, becomes famous, changes her name. And so unless you actually knew Betty Sue from back then, you're going to have no idea. So I, I think you're right. I think he's changed his name so many times. And unless you're actually looking at a picture of him or you're, you're looking right at him, you're not going to know. And so all those layers, all those years, all that traveling and all that and all those names that he's had in the past and identities. Yeah, I mean, very few people, I wonder, except for his inner circle, had any idea of his origin story. And I think that's deliberate. Um, yeah. Now, apparently, even his own sister, Nguyen Thi Tan, who had mm-hmm. been released from prison just prior to World War II, only realized who he was when she finally saw his picture in the newspaper. Right. She'd been hearing <laughs> all this stuff about Ho Chi Minh this and Ho Chi Minh yeah. that. She saw a photo and she's going, oh, my God, uh, <laughs> that looks me. like an older version of my brother I haven't seen in 20 years. <laughs> now, I think... I mean, the reason these guys, these revolutionaries, uh, including Lenin and Stalin uh, and right up through Ho, had um, pseudonyms, secret identities, is because they didn't want blowback on their family. If they got caught and it all went pear-shaped, it all went south, they're like... It's like, you know, Batman or Superman, um, Mm -hmm. they, they want to protect their loved ones. Right. If if your if your real identity is public knowledge, then people can go and bomb your your parents' house or your wife's house or, or whatever. It's the same right. reason why Chrissy doesn't know my true identity. Um, you know, I I keep it a secret from her because right. when the blowback comes, uh, oh, I don't want her caught massive. up in it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the, the other part of that is how many years was uh, Ho directly or indirectly on the run, either from the French authorities. I, I can't remember. At some point, the Chinese had him in jail, and I'm not sure about the Soviets, but he not only does he have to change his name early in his life to to keep ahead of one step ahead of the authorities, but now that he's in this, this position, uh, yeah, he, he needs a new identity. He needs to create himself. He needs to come up with this persona and give himself over to the people, and he did it so well, like you said a minute ago. He's becoming this myth, and it works for him because he is now the leader of this forming country. His sister and brother apparently did eventually go to Hanoi um, to have a secret visit with him at the Northern Palace before it all went pear-shaped. His brother uh, died in 1950 and his sister in 1954, so they never really got to To see see the results of of his work. Now, which, I mean, he didn't either. He died before it was all over, but, um, you know, they died early on. Yeah, yeah. Should we talk about the, um, what does a communist do when there's trouble? They have a national assembly and form a new government, or do you have something else? No. Well, let's, let's move on to that, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I thought it was interesting. So you're right. So the, the, you got the tensions building up. I think everybody pretty much goes, yeah, war's coming. We don't know exactly how, when, where, why, whatever, but it, but it's coming. We just don't know the, the shape of it. But just like Sun Tzu has taught everybody who's read his book, you need to be on top of that stuff. And so Ho wants to convene the National Assembly to work out a new constitution, get a new government in there. There's political reasons as well, but we also need to lock this down so when war does come, we know exactly who's in charge, us, we have our fingers in all the different pies, and, and so we can be an effective fighting force as possible. So it's time for it's time to get rid of the old coalition that, let's be honest, wasn't working anyway. Um, some of the more important people, even like the vice president, President Nguyen Hai Tan, had left. The obviously the uh, nationalists aren't going to be allowed in this government. So it's time to start over from scratch form a new government so we can then start working on the details to be ready to fight either the French or at the very least run this country if they give us a chance to. Yeah. 
So uh, this National Assembly happens October 28th, 1946, and it wasn't like the last time when he was pulling together these sorts of things. Uh, this time, they're not trying to show unity between <laughs> right. all the different uh, revolutionary over. parties. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this time, hundreds of opposition figures were arrested and placed God. in detention camps a few days yeah. before the convention. I was not there were There were armed clashes right across the north. A couple of people died, including a couple of journalists. Uh, there had been 444 representatives elected in January mm-hmm. uh, in 1946. Of those, only 291 were at the Ooh. October National Assembly. Right. Of the 70 representatives from the Nationalist parties who were part of the conference they had in March, only 37 were at the conference in October. So... As we know, when Ho was uh, in uh, France, Jap went through and, and got rid of a lot of the uh, 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 more uh, difficult elements of the nationalists, of the opposition. Sure. And right. this is what I said at the beginning of this episode, you know, the, the, just because uh, we think of Ho as the uh, leader of all of this, there's a lot of dissent Different parties, different views, different ideas. Now, some of them, maybe they were taken out because they were violent. They were plotting an overthrow of Ho and the communists uh, with the support of the Chinese. Or maybe some of them were had the support of the French um, to try and overthrow Ho because we know that was going on. Or maybe mm-hmm. not. Maybe just Jap and Ho uh, decided, you know, fuck these guys. Uh, they're not right. getting on board. We, we need to clear the, clear the decks so we can get shit done. We can't be having all of this debate and argument going on. But I tend to think that uh, knowing what we know of Ho and uh, his attempts over a long period of time to try and bring about unity between all of the parties he's not going to have people arrested or or executed just because ho is not a psychopath from what i can tell um he is not some sort of he's not a stalin he's not just like yeah kill him kill them kill them all uh he's not emperor palpatine issuing order 66 right (laughs) Um, uh, and maybe Jap is, but I don't think so. Jap uh, doesn't strike me as that kind of guy either. I think they're resorting to violence and arrests when they have no other option, when they feel like, listen, you know, these guys are causing trouble. Uh, they're trying to overthrow our revolution. They're counter-revolutionaries. We need to take them. But, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know 100% sure, but that's what it sounds like to me. Um, when... Uh, you know, people were asking what happened to these uh, opposition politicians. They mm-hmm. were told they'd been arrested for crimes of common law. So, mm. yeah, we, we don't really know the truth uh, about what's going on with these guys. Maybe they were guilty of crimes. Maybe they, maybe it was just like a cleansing going on. Hard right. to tell. I mean, you're never really going to know in these sorts of situations. It's going to be propaganda on both sides. It's always important to understand. But knowing what we know of Ho and Jap, I think it's a fair guess to say that um, they were, they felt that it was uh, a last resort option. Yeah. So the National Assembly comes together, and this is being witnessed by foreigners. Uh, the meeting opens up, and there is a one man there who's a veteran party member, a labor minister, uh, Nien Van Tao, who was actually at the Sixth Common uh, Turn Congress back in 1928. The very first thing they do when they open up the assembly is he wants to put forth a, a message of confidence in first citizen Ho Chi Minh. And as we were saying earlier, you know, Ho is still pretty much beloved by the people. So this is approved. There's sustained applause. And so Ho gets up there. And, and this has got to be a very tricky thing for him. So he's like, he gets up there to speak. These people have applauded for him. They've just given him this honor. And he's like, look, I'm going to, you know, yes, the modus vivendi was not exactly everything that we wanted. Um, but I will... Um, 
work with these people if they will work with me. Uh, he asks, uh, he's asked, uh, would France honor the agreement? And he says, look, you have to remember something. There are good and bad people in France, just like there are good and bad people in our own country. In fact, most French citizens approve of the principles of Vietnamese independence. And I wanted to stop right there because do you think he's spinning? Do you think he's doing some fake news? Do you think he's trying to create the story to get out ahead and maybe people will print that because that's not the um, the impression I got. Because we said on the last episode, there was a wave of French nationalism sweeping through France and a lot of the people were like, yeah, we got to take this back. We got to get back our greatness. And so when Ho makes that statement, I, 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 I don't think it was sincere. I think he was trying to uh, control the narrative, if I can use a modern day uh, expression. No, I, I, I think he's uh, being honest. I, I do think that mm. um, there were probably a lot of people in France that were sympathetic to mm-hmm. the Vietnamese people. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like any country. Like the, uh, I'm sure in the United States there are a lot of people who at their core, uh, believe in freedom and independence. Let's take the Venezuela situation that we, we did several right. hours on the bullshit filter about recently. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of Americans who genuinely want the Venezuelan people to have freedom and independence and don't want America right. to be involved. Um, but yeah. when they get saturated with propaganda about Venezuela, um, then they th- they th- get to a point where they think that by supporting intervention, they are mm-hmm. actually doing the right uh, thing. Right. We're helping them but, against their cruel leader kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah. Oh, they're being oppressed. Uh, we need to intervene directly or indirectly uh, to help these poor people. Look, they can't even get food being delivered right. to them via trucks. Look at that aid right. stalled at the border by their evil dictator. Right. Uh, that, that kind of stuff. So I, I think the French were no different in this uh, mm. period, 1946. A lot of good people. Um, they wanted the right thing, liberté, fraternité, qualité, um, but – they're going to be manipulated by the government, by the military, by the media, and I've got some um, evidence of that later on. Um, So Ho did break one promise uh, during this conference that he'd made to the French. Uh, Before he left France, he promised that when he got back to Hanoi, he would broaden the government to make it more representative of the various political opinions uh, across the population. But... Mm -hmm. He actually did the contrary. During the October Assembly, 1946, the government submitted its resignation. Ho was asked to form a new one. And when he did, it was pretty much entirely communist, far (laughs) more so than the original one. I think there was two members of the new government who were not communists. Everyone else was. And all of the key positions were Jap, again, as the Minister for National Defence. Ho is still president. Um, he's also the foreign affairs minister and the prime minister. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they're, cl- they're, they're battening down the hatches, closing rank, making sure that it's all of their people um, pretty much that are in control of the government moving forwards. Now, you know, this is an entirely hose fault or the communist fault. As we pointed out, uh, the communists and the nationalists weren't getting along it's doubtful at this stage that the nationalists even wanted to be part of the coalition right. government with the communists yeah. at this stage. They were openly opposing the communists um, and openly opposing Ho's attempts to do peace deals with the French. They'd been opposing that all along. Uh, they wanted to take a more hardline attack. Uh, and, and as we've seen before, at least some of them were... Um, yeah, being supported by the Chinese, not the not um, Mao, not the communist Chinese, but the uh, Kuomintang Chinese, right. and Ho feared that the Chinese wanted to take control of uh, Vietnam again. So you know, there's blame on both sides here. I think that's important to acknowledge. Yeah. So I think you're right. Yeah, I think that the changes that that was made in the government and the constitution. 
reflect the realpolitik changes on the ground. You know, war is coming. The nationalists aren't going to be a help. If anything, they're going to be a hindrance. So they have to do this to, to lock it down. And even though the government is more left than what it was previously, uh, we're going to see, and this is important to me because um, growing up not knowing anything about Vietnam except for everybody there was bad and we were the good guys, you know, when the, when the draft constitution does come out, it is pretty moderate, and it was moderate on purpose because they're trying to appeal to as many people in the country as they possibly can. So, yes, the government has gone to the left, not that that's a bad thing, but the constitution in general is very moderate, as we're probably going to get to in a minute, but again, they are trying to do what's best for the people, because that's the entire point of the revolution in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Now, a few weeks later, after the National Assembly, Trong Chin, uh, who I mentioned before, the General Secretary of the ICP. Uh, by the way, Trong Chin was his pseudonym. It means Long March, which right. is oh, it, it yeah. was named in honour of the Long March, which was yeah. the 6,000-mile military retreat that the Red Army made mm-hmm. uh, between, I think it was 34 and 36, led by Mao Zedong. Right. Um, Trong Chin wrote an article that, again, criticised Ho's stage-by-stage approach of trying to achieve peace with an independence uh, with the French. Yeah. He wanted a more ideological approach to the revolution. But the new constitution that they drafted during the assembly was fairly moderate, was designed to appeal to the majority of the population. They didn't want to scare them off. It talked about democratic freedoms, talked about having a broad alliance between all of the patriotic groups to struggle against the French, Mm -hmm. and it guaranteed the sanctity of private property, didn't mention communism or the ultimate goal of a classless society. You know, partly I think... They wanted to do this uh, to make sure they could try and get a broad coalition of of, of patriotic groups. Uh, also, they didn't want to scare off the Americans, right? They wanted right. to, they, as Ho kept saying, look, maybe 50 years from now we want communism, but not right now. It's too soon. Got too much going on. You know, right. it's it's not the immediate priority. But freedom. it also, yeah, yeah, we just want freedom. And it also didn't mention being part of the French Union, um, which was something that the French obviously noticed. Right. Um, meanwhile, the ceasefire in Cochin, China, that was part of the modus vivendi, had gone into effect, but it didn't last long. Clashes broke shock. out. Shock. shock gasp. Yeah. The French sent sweep operations into guerrilla-held areas, and it's, it's just starting to crumbling. I think by now the French had lost all faith uh, in the peace process, if they ever had any faith in, <laughs> right. it in the first place, which I don't think Thank that you. they did. Yeah. Um, Diaz Genlio uh, was saying in private that he thought that it was time to execute a coup d'etat, to overthrow Ho and replace him with a more compliant government right. in the north. And Jesus. during this period, late 1946, Diaz is making contact with Baodai, the former puppet emperor, who's now living in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. basically uh, sleeping with hookers and gambling. <laughs> um, they're, they're sounding him out on serving as the head of this new government. Yeah. So uh, that's going on behind the scenes. So it was I, obvious that war was yeah. coming. I, ju- I just have to ask real quick, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but let's say you know you've written several books, they take off. You do a couple of documentaries, they take off. I'm sorry, but I can't help but picture you in Hong Kong in your underwear, hookers, coke. You know, just whatever video games. I have no idea. Mm. I think if you get too much success. That's where you're going to end up. So I mm-hmm. think for now, during the struggle, th- this is probably going to be your best years. I fear success for you. W- where do you see your? Where do you see yourself if you if you uh, if everything works out for you? Oh, total debauchery. Um, <laughs> little boys, farm animals. Um, I'm you know, there. Just the yeah. the most degrading uh, <laughs> things that a human being can do. You only, you only live once. That's true. Um, 
you got to do it all. Yeah. yeah. No, totally, totally agree with you. Uh, as soon as I have money and fame, oh, man. <laughs> it's going. It's all, it's all going up my nose and up my ass, I tell you. It's, uh... It's a coffee mug. Um, yeah, so, so, so you're right. So D'Agelou was telling the general uh, Valouy, if I'm saying his name right, who's in command of the French forces, look, and this is mid-November, if negotiations do completely fall flat, we're still talking to them, but if it does fall flat, I don't want you to hesitate. I want you to hit, hit hard. We're talking the south, central, north. I want you to be able to go in there and just take these guys out. Yes, they do have 24 million people in this country, but they hardly have any weapons, as we're going to see later. later. Just get in there and take control of everything that's worth having control over. Well, the weapon situation was an issue, and the Vietnamese are trying to get their hands on weapons via China. And because yeah. the land borders have been shut down by the French, uh, they're smuggling them in by sea, along with other things like gasoline, in return for rice coming in from mm. China, sending rice back. And they're coming in through Haiphong Port which right. is the port that's uh, in the far north of Vietnam, sort of the port of Hanoi. Hanoi's a bit inland. Right. The port city um, for Hanoi is Haiphong. They could get them in through Haiphong because the French hadn't taken control of Haiphong yet. Mm. Now, the French had insisted that they wanted control of customs and all of the ports at Fontainebleau. That was part of their right. demands. But, of course, no agreement was reached at Fontainebleau, and in the modus vivendi, it just said that they would keep talking about it. Mm. But that was all Dang. about to change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now, so of course, as, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, as you can imagine, D'Angelou and General Moulier, I'm not sure how to say his name, who's in charge of French forces in the north. I mean, you're right, these, these guys want to take control of the customs for the port city because that does the, the import tax does bring in a lot of money. And let's never forget that the reason France is trying to come back into Vietnam, not only for prestige, is for the cash. And this is, this is you know, one of the, the cash cows of Vietnam. And so they do want absolute control over, the, over this port city. But they, like you said, for right now, they do not have it. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. <laughs> oh, sorry. Can't say that anymore. It's anti Semitic. No. Um, okay. <laughs> so, by, er, by early November, the French military took back control of Haiphong Port. Yeah. They, they referred to Haiphong as the lungs of Tonkin. Mm. Uh, Valois told D'Argelio on November 9th France would. Put the Tonkinese authorities and populace at our mercy through the asphyxiation of the country's economy. Damn! So much for helping the natives. We're going to ch choke them, strangle them to death? What? Is that a metaphor? Something like that? Yeah, like, and I'm like, just, you know, cut the attempt at being a poet, motherfucker. Right. Just say you're <laughs> going to attack it. the poor. Yeah. Like, the asphyxiation of the country's economy, the lungs of Tonkin. Like, all right, you're not a fucking yeah. poet. Shut the fuck up. You're a general. Just right, but he is French, so frustrated poet. He's yeah, half halfway there. He's probably got a turtleneck. Um, yeah. So yeah. the French were trying to take control of the ports. The Vietnamese government protested, and of course, they were mostly worried about their weapons shipments being yeah. intercepted. So in the same month, November 1946, the French Navy seized a Chinese junk. Now, I know you've seen a lot of Chinese junk in your time, Ray, but this was a Chinese junk that was carrying a cargo of oh. contraband gasoline, not weapons, but gasoline that was supposedly heading for the Vietnamese armed forces. While they were towing the junk to shore, local Vietnamese militia fired on the French. The French, of course, returned fire, and shit was on, like Donkey Kong. Uh, it, it fighting quickly spread throughout the city of Haiphong, and this is when, I guess, shit goes, hits the fan. Is that what I'm Yes, this is when the shit yeah. hits the fan. Shits this the is fan. the turning yeah. point. Uh, a ceasefire is reached, but again, it doesn't last very long. Well, it's hard to, for the ceasefire to last long when you not not or not quite forty eight hours into the ceasefire, 
uh, Valouis orders the local commander to not, I mean, they've already got control of the port. Now he wants him to take control of the entire city. So that's the exact opposite of a ceasefire. That is, that is an increase in escalations. But like, like the French politicians, uh, De Argelou was saying, this is your opportunity. This is what we were waiting for. Hit them and hit them hard. And that's exactly what the French troops are going to do. Yeah, Valouis, the general, ordered a fairly volatile local commander, Colonel Pierre-Louis Debé, uh, who apparently really hated the Vietnamese. Uh, He ordered him to take maximum advantage of this incident in order to improve our position in Haiphong. It seems clear that we are facing premeditated aggression, carefully planned by the regular Vietnamese army, which seems no longer to be following its government's orders. The mm-hmm. moment has arrived to teach a hard lesson to those who have so treacherously attacked us. Mm-hmm. By every possible means, you must take complete control of Haiphong and force the Vietnamese government and army into submission. Now, of course, I want to be very, very clear at this stage. The French had no authority to seize this Chinese junk. Right. They, they had no. The yeah, that's right. They had they had no right to take control of the Haiphong port. This was still in the hands of the Vietnamese government. The DRV agreement had not been reached to hand it over to the French. It wasn't even close to that. So the French are definitely in the wrong here. There's no if buts or maybes. This is complete bullshit. Valois' positioning of it as premeditated aggression is complete and utter bullshit. The French seized this ship. They had no rights to do it. And the Vietnamese were defending their control over their Mm -hmm. port. So, as you can imagine, in the history of warfare, this is what's going to happen because this has happened so many times before. Because the the Vietnamese are, are a militia, when things start don't start going their way, they hide within the city. They hide within the Chinese quarter of the city, and um, the uh, the French are look saying you you've got to come out, you've got to put your guns down, like you were saying, you've got to surrender. But of course, the Vietnamese ignore that because they are there to defend their uh, defend their uh, freedom and and the port city. So that section, the Chinese section of the city, is shelled by the French. It doesn't matter to them that hundreds of civilians are going to die. They're hoping at least they take out some of the uh, the militia that are with the Vietnamese. But the point is, they do shell into this. I'm going to call it a neighborhood. A, I don't, you know, residential area, whatever you want to call it. But they shell it, and hundreds of civilians who have nothing to do with this are now dead. Yeah, uh, according to. Eyewitness reports uh, civilians attempting to flee the town were strafed by spitfires. Jesus. And then 2,000 French troops stormed that quarter of the city. They came under fire from the Viet Minh. Fighting continued for several days until the Viet Minh finally retreated. A French officer, Henri Martin, uh, said years later, when we visited Haiphong afterwards, all the Vietnamese neighborhoods were completely wiped out. They were dead, buried under debris. It is difficult to know the exact figure, but the larger part of the city, it seemed to us from what we saw, that is almost the entire Vietnamese part of the city had right. been destroyed. Jesus. Yeah, the Vietnamese were pushed out by November uh, 28th. And uh, yeah, so again, this is confusing to me because I know you need to win, but you are there because you want money. If you destroy this entire city and kill all these people who I guess you're going to need as workers, it seems almost counterproductive to me. But I guess priority one is winning the war and then you can enslave all the survivors. Again. Yeah. Again, exactly. Yeah. Now, Valouis did all of this without prior approval from either Paris or Diagelu, uh, who was still in Paris trying to get reinforcements. Get right. But when Daji found out, um, he was pretty happy about it. On November 24th, Daji cabled his congratulations from Paris and uh, added, we will never retreat or surrender. It's It'll be like, war. never? <laughs> never? You sure about that, Daji? Right. Never, never. Pretty tough talk. 
is a pretty long time, Dargy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Never? Mm. Yeah, Let's wait last, and see what happens. Famous last words from a Frenchman, Dargy. <laughs> Never retreat or surrender. Mm. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. I think that's where we will um, end uh, episode 109, Papa Bear. So suffice to say that this is uh, the turning point. Uh, the French and the Vietnamese are now basically at war, all-out yeah. war. From this point onwards, uh, we are in the first Indochina war all the way. Pull their pants right. all the way on. Right. <laughs> Uh, we've we've got we've done the the bandana montage. Right. Uh, we are going to war, boys and girls. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. <laughs>